so we got mail, like us. We got mail, and I thought in a moment we'd read it together. Um, But to give a little context, this is the week that the city sent out notices to people that their utility debt had been erased because of your generosity. And they let us, as a church, put a note in with all those notices. And by the way, the city has been extremely easy and enjoyable to work with through all this. So they let us put a note just explaining you know, what was happening and, and why we did it. And so a couple days ago, we uh, got a, a, an email from someone, and I thought we'd just read it together. Okay, so here we go. Hi, my name is, and I took her name out. She doesn't want thousands of people to know her name, probably. Hi, my name is, and I just wanted to say how thankful I am that your church paid my bill in full. You don't understand what this has done for me. I literally just got my three children three weeks ago back from foster care. I had been homeless and addicted to drugs for the last three years. I went to prison for treatment and decided to come here to Columbia when I got out so I can stay clean and get my family back. In less than nine months, I've gotten a job where now I'm a shift supervisor. I got a house and have now proven to DFS I am stable and sober and they are letting us do trial home placement. I'd been trying to figure out how to pay my bills plus make sure the kids had what they needed. I'd set up a payment plan. I was going to pay bills when I opened the letter from the utility company saying that my bill had been paid in full. I was in utter shock since never have I been used to such blessing before. So from my heart, I thank you for myself and my children. I am now able to pay on my gas and we still have a little money left over so I can take them to do something fun. What your church has done for my family and others during this time is truly amazing and kind. Thank you for being so generous. Thank you for being willing to sacrifice. Thank you for being available to be used by God and to be the answer to someone's prayer. Just like someone else has probably been the answer to your prayers at different points in your life. Could, could we just do that for a moment? Could we just pray for this woman? Would you bow your head and, and just in the silence of your own thoughts, would you pray for her? She's got a lot of responsibilities. She has a lot going on. And don't just pray for her finances, but pray, pray for her what you would want someone to pray for you. And then would you just take a moment and pray for other people who received that notice and that letter and just ask God to be in their life and to use it in whatever way he sees fit. Father, um, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to participate in you loving people. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Thank you for allowing us to give so that we could be a blessing to others, just as you've been a blessing to us in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start this morning with some scenarios. Scenarios that are completely fictional, but might sound eerily familiar. So let's start with Sue. 
Sue's in her late 50s, she has adult children, and she's been really successful in her career. If you were to ask her if she's a Christian, she'd say, absolutely. When I was 12, I went to camp, and it's there I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Now, I haven't read my Bible. Sue would tell you she hasn't read her Bible in decades. She hasn't been to church in decades. But if you were to hint that maybe Sue's not a Christian, she'd be very offended. She knows John 3.16. She asked Jesus to be her Savior. That's what makes the person a Christian, right? Or consider James. He and his fiancée are in their 20s. They go to church regularly. They even serve in children's ministry. They've been living together for a while now. Yet James knows what the Bible teaches, that sex is for marriage, and that sex outside of marriage is sin. But he's always thought that's a little unrealistic, especially now with their wedding getting so close. And they're not really hurting anybody, are they? Consider Sally. She and her husband have run a business together, raised kids together. But, you know, they've noticed that their, their, their relationship is dissolving. It's becoming unglued. Sally knows that it's partly probably because of their busyness. They're always out of town. They try to go to church, but they're traveling or they're at work or kids' sports. They just don't make it to church or small group like they used to when their kids were younger. She knows there hasn't been any infidelity. There's no abuse. She's not even mad at her husband. She just feels empty and wants a change. So when the youngest gets his driver's license, she's decided that's when she's going to get divorced. Now, my question for us this morning is, is how have we gotten ourselves in a world where people think of themselves as Christians, but are very content, very comfortable, super duper okay with living like non-Christians. How did we get ourselves in this spot? Now, look, this is a tricky topic, and it's hard to be, uh, 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 cover every nuance and every possibility in the time we have. So let me say this to try to be really clear. A relationship with Jesus, to be forgiven by God, that can never be earned. That's always a gift. It's always of grace. And none of us live consistently with our beliefs. That's why the Apostle Paul, very late in his life, can write this to his uh, uh, protege, Timothy. He can say, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So here Paul, a Jesus-loving, Jesus-following Christian, an an apostle, knows his own sin and knows that still late in his life, he's trying to live consistently with what he believes to be true. But there's a really big difference between seeing our sin and confessing it and asking God to change us and seeing our sin and not caring or refusing to see our sin Uh, That's really different. Those aren't all the same. So I don't think it's crazy. I don't think it's being judgmental to say that if we have people who think of themselves as Christians but don't really have much interest in Jesus, that we've got a problem somewhere. And the problem that we have might be related to the system that we've set up, the system of belief that we've set up in the church. Not just the crossing, but the church worldwide. There's a a quote here. 
says, your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're currently experiencing. This was said by a guy named Edward Dimming. And his point was, is that, that in every area of your life, in every business, in every school, you're getting a certain outcome. And that outcome is based on the system that you set up, the system, the choices, the people, and you'll continue to get that outcome as long as you keep the same system. So it could relate to your money. Your money, you have a certain outcome right now. And that's based on the system of spending and income and investments, however you think about your money. And you're only going to change the outcome if you change the system. You can apply it to your health or your relationships. Well, you can also apply it to our faith. If our outcome is a lot of people who think they're Christians but have little interest in obeying or following Jesus, maybe that's because we've set up a system that has led them to believe that. And that system might be that we've told people, maybe we've even been told ourselves, that becoming a Christian is praying a prayer Becoming a Christian is asking Jesus to forgive us our sins so that we can avoid going to hell. Now, let's say that's what you were told. Ask Jesus to be your Savior, pray this prayer, and you won't go to hell. Okay, I'll do that. I don't want to go to hell. I'll do that. Now somebody comes along the next day, the next month, the next year, and says, well, you need to be following Jesus. You need to obey Jesus. You need to be a part of a Christian community, a church. You, you need to obey him in your money or your sexuality or everything. And you'd be going, well, hang on a second. That's not what anybody told me. They just said, ask Jesus to be my Savior and I go to heaven. Nobody said, is this like a big bait and switch? What's going on? There's an old movie, a Monty Python movie, Search for the Holy Grail. And uh, it's pretty funny if you've never seen it. But there is a, a, a group of knights, King Arthur and his knights, and they're trying to get to the castle. And they finally come up to the castle. But between them and the castle is this huge abyss and this rickety old bridge that you can make it across on it. And there's this kind of wizened old bridge keeper who's standing guard. And the only way he will let you across the bridge is if you can correctly answer the questions that he asks. Well, I think that is how we think about our salvation. When we die, we'll either go to the castle in the sky or the abyss of hell. And it all depends on whether we have the right answers to God's questions. He's going to give us a quiz. Do you know the right answer? If you do, you're in. And if not, too bad. But is that how Jesus talks? I don't think it is. This is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. See, Jesus never asked anyone to pray a prayer. He, said, he never said, hey, pray to receive me into your heart. But what he did is he called and invited all kinds of people to follow him. There's a satirical website called the Babylon Bee. If you're not familiar with it, you should be familiar with it. It's pretty funny. And they're Christians. They make fun of everybody, including Christians most of the time. And there was a headline that said, Bible lacking sinner's prayer returned for a full refund. And the whole joke of it is that somebody bought a Bible, couldn't find the verse that talked about the magic prayer that gets you into heaven. And so they thought their Bible was defective. And so they returned it. This is what the fictional news story said. 
Uh, it's a quote from the person who bought it. I, I searched that Bible through and through and couldn't find anything about a magic prayer I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them forevermore secure in their eternal salvation no matter what their life looks like afterward. Now, now the whole point is that the reason that they couldn't find that magic prayer in their Bible is because that magic prayer isn't in the Bible. But a lot of people think it is. A lot of people assume it is. A lot of people have been told that it is. So we're in the middle of a sermon series called Eight Bad Ideas That Good Christians Believe. And evidently, my objective is to get as many people offended at me in this sermon series as possible. Or at least that's what my email would tell me. But remember, it's eight bad ideas that good, sincere, smart Christians believe. And today we're going to wrestle with this. Good Christians believe the bad idea that you become a Christian by praying a prayer. See, we've been taught to think about being a Christian with the approach of the minimum entrance requirements. But when you think of it that way, what it does, it makes the rest of the Bible, which is pretty much all the Bible, kind of optional. Can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, hey, everybody, just want to let you know, you don't actually have to do anything I say. You just believe my death paid for your sins, and you're all good. You can ignore everything else I say. Now, now when Jesus calls us to obey him, he's not telling us to earn our relationship with him. You can't earn it. When Jesus calls us to obey him, he's teaching us what it means to follow him. Just like he invited Matthew to do. Just like he invites all of us to do. Obeying Jesus is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But one thing we know for sure, Jesus never said that we can enjoy the benefits of forgiveness with no, you know, kind of, and then pay no attention to him. Then one have nothing else to do with him. When he says, follow me, Jesus undermines that minimum entrance requirement uh, philosophy that kind of asks, what's the least I can do and still get to heaven? And Jesus never talks that way. Uh, John Ortberg says, can you imagine saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I, I trust you with my sin, but that's pretty much it. Uh, Jesus, I trust you with my eternal life, but not my everyday life. Hey, Jesus, I want your blood to cover me so I get to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell, but I want to keep control of the rest of my life. When you say it that way, it kind of sounds silly, doesn't it? We either trust Jesus enough to follow him or we don't. In a couple of weeks, Christine and I will celebrate our, our 31st anniversary. And a long time ago, we stood at an altar and took vows. Now, imagine if while the pastor up there is doing his thing, if I kind of leaned over to Christine and whispered, and I said, hey, what's the least I can do and stay in this marriage? Like, what's the minimum commitment you'll accept from me? And like, we can still keep doing this thing. I mean, if I had said that, that would have been a really short ceremony, right? Because, because marriage is not just a legal contract. It's a personal, spiritual, whole life relationship in which the relationship itself is the, is the perk, is the thing you want. Now, uh, marriage would be really hard. 
It requires fidelity. It requires faithfulness. It requires saying no to sexual intimacy with anyone else. It requires vulnerability and service and, and commitment. And for me, at least in my case, to pretend like I like country music. It, uh, marriage is hard. It's hard. Now, are there minimum entrance requirements for marriage? Well, yeah, minimum requirements to keep it together. Well, I mean, I guess so. I mean, there's uh, uh, sadly, a lot of marriages end every day. But if you really want the marriage, the, the, the minimum requirements kind of take care of themselves. And if you really don't want the marriage, then the minimum requirements aren't going to keep it together. One thing that will never define Christian, never define the word Christian, is the Bible. It never defines it. Jesus never even uses the word. Uh, instead, the, the, the Bible likes, the New Testament likes a different word, a word that it uses a lot, and that's the word disciple. We see it in Acts chapter 11. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So catch this, the, the people who followed Jesus, they called themselves the disciples of Jesus, but then other people started calling them Christians. Christian is used three times in the New Testament. Disciple, 300 times. Now, how are disciples different than Christians? Are, are disciples kind of like the, the overachievers, the kid who sits in the front of the class and always raises his hand? Are disciples kind of like the Navy SEALs of Christianity? Is discipleship optional? Kind of like you might go buy a car and find that, that, that leather seats and a sunroof are optional. Is that what a disciple is? Like optional to the Christian life? No. If you read your New Testament, it's clear that a disciple is a Christian and a Christian is a disciple. We, we see that in Acts chapter 6. So the word of God spread. So they're talking to people about Jesus and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The people who were believing in Jesus, they were called the disciples because they were learning from, they were students, they were followers of Jesus. So the word Christian is unfortunately vague. It's easy to hide behind because two different people can use the same word and mean completely different things. And who am I to judge whether somebody's a Christian or not? I, I would have no idea. I'm not qualified for that job. I have no interest in that job. And I'm sure that you don't either. But the word disciple, it, it's a little clearer. It, it's kind of uncomfortably clear. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. Acts, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6. The student is not above the teacher. Now, this is Jesus talking. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So disciples are students and followers who become like the one that they follow. So disciples of Jesus will become more like Jesus. Disciples of, of cable news will become angrier and more suspicious. Disciples of fitness will become vainer. And disciples of Amazon will become impatient and discontent. But disciples of Jesus will become more like Jesus. So if I want to know if I'm a disciple of Jesus, all I have to do is ask myself, or if you're really brave, others, am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Now look, maybe we don't need to abandon the word Christian. Maybe we just need to understand it. Uh, know where it comes from. 
Maybe you get it, it's obvious. Christian comes from Christ, Jesus Christ. But Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. Like president isn't Joe Biden's last name. Mr. President is his title. It's his title. So what does Christ mean, this title given to Jesus? What does it mean? Well, it means the anointed one. Which sounds kind of weird until you realize that the story of the Old Testament is a story about the anointed king, God's anointed king returning to reclaim and renew his earth, his creation, his people. Now, if every time we see uh, Jesus Christ, what we in our mind can think is King Jesus, Jesus the King. But wait for it here. That means that every time we see the word Christian, what we should be thinking of is we are subjects to the King. Kings have subject. He's the King, and if we are his followers, we are his subjects, his uh, men, his women. Because the heart of the gospel is that Jesus is King, and he will one day return and reign here with his people over his creation. He is our saving king. He is the king that gave his life to pay for our sin and was enthroned upon a cross. He is the risen king who now reigns over all creation. So the right image of a Christian is one who is on his or her knee, bended knee, bowing down to their king, saying, Jesus, not only you're my king, but you're also my ruler. You're also my Lord, my rescuer, my savior, my guide. Jesus, I give you my allegiance, my loyalty. I want to be faithful to you. And then that means spending our life, bringing every part of our life under his lordship. Our words, our thoughts, our money, our time, our sexuality, all of it. Because we're his subjects. Nothing is off limits in our life. In March of 44 B.C., the Ides of March, Julius Caesar was killed by his frenemies who were afraid that he was gathering too much power. And with his death, civil war broke out in the Roman Empire. And as civil wars go, it got pretty messy so that two people who had started on the same side ended up opposing one another at the end to fight it out to see who would be the last one standing, who would be king of the Roman Empire. And on one side, you had Octavian. He was the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. And on the other side, you had Mark Antony, who is famous for many things, including his relationship with Cleopatra of Egypt. Well, Octavian's navy defeated Mark Antony's navy outside of Greece. And when that happened, Mark Antony and Cleopatra fled back to Egypt, where they eventually commit suicide. Octavian has won. Now, you're in Rome, and you hear that Octavian has defeated his enemies. Is that good news or bad news for you? Well, I guess it all depends on who you supported, right? Let's say that you supported Mark Antony, or let's say you supported those who killed Julius Caesar. Maybe what you feel like should happen is that you need to leave town. You need to get away. You need to run and hide for your life. 
Herod the Great, the Herod that is in the Gospels, Herod the Great that was the ruler of Jerusalem at the time of of Jesus' birth, he was in that position. He had supported Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Everybody in the Middle East had stuck together. Now Octavian had won, and Herod the Great was on the wrong side, the wrong side of the winner. So did he run? Did he leave? Uh-uh. He sailed right for Octavian, and he looked at Octavian, and he said, don't pay attention to who I supported. Pay attention to how loyal my support was. And Herod got down on his knee and pledged his allegiance to Octavian. And Octavian accepted it. Octavian accepted it and reaffirmed Herod's rule uh, over Jerusalem and Palestine. Now, we're in the same situation We have heard that a new king has won, that King Jesus has defeated all of his enemies on the cross and in his resurrection, that King Jesus is the true king of this earth, and he is returning. And now we have a choice. We have been worshiping. We have been bowing down. We have been giving our allegiance to the king of self. We have been worshiping and bowing down to all kinds of other rival kings in our world, but now we have a choice. We can run, we can hide, we can double down on self-worship, or we can run to Jesus, and we can bend our knee, and we can say, Jesus, we pledge our allegiance to you. Jesus, we want you to rule and reign over our life, just as you rule and reign over the entire world. Jesus, we want to follow you and obey you and love you and worship you. We give you our life. And we can now spend the rest of the years that he gives us bringing every area of our life under his kingship for he is worthy to receive it. He is the gracious king, the kind king, the merciful king, the king who gave his life for you. So turn from self-worship. Turn from bowing down to yourself and instead pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. He is the only one who's worth it. He will never fail you. Would you stand and let's close our service by praying together. Jesus, we confess that too often we drift back to giving allegiance to ourselves, worshiping ourselves and everything around us in this world. But God, we want to come and bow our knee to King Jesus. We thank you that you are a forgiving king and a loving king. We pray that you have mercy upon us. We also ask, Lord, that you would point out any area of our life that more needs to come under your lordship, that we need to surrender and submit to you. We want to follow the true king, our king, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great Sunday.